Columbus's first landfall was what we Europeans refer to as the New World, and was actually on an island he named San Salvador. Opinion generally states that this island lay within the Bahamas, but which island exactly is still a matter of debate. A number of researchers or historians believe that the site was the present-day San Salvador Island, formerly known as Watlings Island in the southeastern Bahamas. However, National Geographic writer and editor Joseph Judge based his calculations on Columbus's log and believes that he actually landed on Samana Cay. On this landfall island, Columbus made contact with the Lusaeans and exchanged goods with them, while at the same time claiming the islands for the crown of Castile. So, back to the present day. Ask anybody what they believe to be the most dangerous creature underwater, and chances are they will say the great white shark. Ask Christina Zanato, and she'll tell you she doesn't go with most dangerous lists or least dangerous lists. In fact, Christina believes that the most dangerous creatures underwater are the two-legged ones, us humans. We don't have great whites here, so I only saw them in South Africa many years back. But yes, I've interacted with bulls and tigers. And those three would be regarded as the most dangerous, would they? Mm, I don't. I think the most dangerous is humans and their human factors and uh, how they are in the water and their level of actions and sometimes the lack of considerations and a little bit of a hint of stupidity that they put in when they go in the water and do certain things with animals. I think each animals needs a certain kind of considerations. I have a hard time labeling animals, you know, as aggressive or more dangerous or less dangerous. Uh, there's more more bites from uh, nurse sharks than there are from bull sharks. Why is that? Because people go down there and uh, harass the nurse shark, saying, oh, it's a nurse shark, uh, cute and cuddly, I'm just going to pull its tail. Because, you know, everybody goes through somebody's backyard and pulls a dog's tail that they don't know. And then the nurse shark turns around and bites them in a defensive. And so there's a nurse shark bite. So there's more nurse shark bites out there than there are bull shark bites. And so I think it's it's... It's a two-way ramp of how we relate ourselves with the animals and what we do. Now, are some sharks more intensive? Intense, sorry. Um, Meaning the way they hunt, the way they feed, the way they uh, they are kind of food uh, puts them in a more heightened positions in relation to us as our body shape and everything. Most likely that uh, there is, you know, categorization. Oh, this is the most dangerous. Absolutely. I would say no, no. I have a friend. He's out of, of uh, San Diego, California, and I encourage everyone to look him up on Instagram. His name is Scott Fairchild and he has daily videos of great whites, surfers, swimmers, paddleboarders sharing the same ocean, the same coastline, the same waters. Daily, daily he posts about that. He drones out there every day. He is a great spokesperson to show what is the reality of being in the water, even with great whites. Look up any reference books or online websites and it will tell you that the great white shark, also known as the white shark, white pointer, or simply great white, is a species of large mackerel shark, which can be found in the coastal surface waters of all major oceans. 
It will also tell you that great white sharks are the most aggressive sharks in the world and have recorded 333 attacks on humans, with 52 of them being fatal. But put these statistics to a shark expert and he or she will tell you that these attacks are usually the result of a swimmer doing something silly or that these attacks are mistakes on behalf of the great white. After all, a swimmer on a surfboard on the surface to a shark underneath looking upwards, this looks like a penguin or seal, hence a food source. Would you have any problem diving in an area where you knew there were great whites and uh, would you change your safety procedures to any extent? Yes. I mean, uh, I always say this one size does not fit all. That means we need to adapt to the location, circumstances of the location, shark species in the location, and even daily conditions. Daily conditions change the, uh, change our attitude. Why wouldn't I change the one of animals? So there's also the times in which I will be at the shoreline and say, not today. But it doesn't mean that I'm phobic or totally scared or frightened. And it's, it's the same way we go, don't go driving at 100 kilometers an hour when they say there is uh, ice on the roads. It's just just a way of being in life. If there is a, I come from Verona, I come from fog country. I mean, I've done nights and nights where I couldn't even see the headlights of my car. I had to get out of the car to see if my headlights were on or off. <laughs> and I couldn't even see the hood of my car from the fog. So obviously I'm not driving at the same speed at which I would drive on a sunny, clear day. Uh, and this is the same with sharks, is is an understanding and appreciation. There are some days where I might be standing on a shoreline and I might tell my dogs, not today, you're not going swimming. So as that is their territory, is their world, not ours. Yeah, so you watch you watch for their behavior then when you're down there. When I'm down there, I'm usually uh, already made a decision that it's okay to be down there. So all I do is go about my behavior and my diving. Uh, if I dive with some of the, uh, let's say, the, the bigger animals, like the tigers, yes, of course, you have to, to watch them and, you know, gauge your interaction with them. dedicated a lifetime, 26 years, and 25 of those have been spent in the water with sharks. We may still be a little bit afraid of sharks, but we need sharks. The sharks are vital for balancing the ecosystems, and this planet survives on the balance of the oceans. They have been affected by our fishing, by our coastal destruction, by our pollution. This is the um, box of hooks that I've removed through the years. Over 300. I think sharks are absolutely beautiful. I love how they seamlessly swim through the water. Like my parents taught me, there are no monsters in the sea, only the one we make up in our heads.
I know there's quite a lot of talk at the moment about the environment and global warming, etc. As regards the marine and marine life, what are we doing wrong to damage that at the moment? Oh. <laughs> uh, do you have time for another podcast? So, uh, I think the the, 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 the the concept is the biggest issue for me that I see is we think that it's an endless, bountiful, uh, up for grabs environment. And for the people that are closer to it, for some fishing industries from some fishers, it's become a reality that it's not. But for the general public, it's just like, well, just keep taking. It's mine, mine, mine. And I think that is maybe the biggest mistake. Is just thinking that the oceans will keep giving, uh, will keep absorbing, will keep helping and providing uh, without any care in the world. But like anything, they need our care. I think we need to reevaluate uh, the way we understand uh, fishing and the way we do it. There is a sustainable way of fishing, but is not happening in many parts. And is it requires both the adaptation of the public, let's say the consumers, as well as the adaptation of the industry, uh, which doesn't mean reducing jobs. It just means diversifying them and changing them in, in different ways. And I think those will be the first that we need to do. But then we're attacking the oceans from, from many points of view, from the way we consume, the way we produce chemicals, the way we regurgitate stuff into them. Um, it is quite frightening. I live on an island that has no recycling, but then when I go back to Europe, originally from Italy, I see an even more higher plastic consumption because everybody goes, well, we recycle. <laughs> and everything, even more so than here, is triple packed in plastic. There's plastic everywhere because there's this, like, well, in Europe, we recycle. And it's like, yeah, recycling only works for like 20% of what we produce and consume. So there's drastic changes i think that need that are beyond my sometimes comprehension sometimes i try to go down the rabbit hole and then you clash with maritime laws with uh, environmental laws with uh, uh, disease prevention laws <laughs> and my goodness it's a rabbit hole that is as big as a galaxy that goes down and how it interferes. There's no straight answer. We go back to education, maybe educating ourselves, doing a little bit by little as each individual can, um, not asking the world to change 100% at once. But imagine if somebody, you know, if 8 billion people or half of those 8 billion people said, well, I'm going to change this one thing today, how much that might have an environmental impact on, on our world, not just the oceans. Every year, 8 million metric tons of rubbish enters the sea from land. A major part of that rubbish is plastic. And that's the equivalent of two bags of rubbish for every foot of coastline in the world. In discussing damage to marine life earlier with Christina, the plastic problem reared its ugly head. Unfortunately, we still seem to be miles off solving the problem. Many solutions have been put forward so let's hear one from Ellen MacArthur, Chair of the Trustees of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. 
Anyone can make plastic anywhere in the world and sell it anywhere else in the world. There's no design paradigm, there's no barriers. In order to solve the plastic packaging problem, we need to effectively rethink the entire system. From one which is linear, i.e. take, make, dispose, to one where it can be recovered and fed back into the economy as a valuable plastic material, or one where it is bio-benign and it can enter the environment. The ultimate goal of the new plastics economy is to design an economy where plastic packaging never becomes waste. And to do that, we need every single player in the chain to change the way that they do things. For more information on Christina Zanato, just log on to her website or simply Google Christina Zanato, Z-E-N-A-T-O. In the meantime, here's a condensed version of the ocean diving services offered by Christina and her husband. We uh, there's there's quite a, a extensive descriptions of them on our website, um, which is ChristinaZanato.com. So my first name, last name.com. We specialize in two. Uh, our two specialties is taking people on educational interactive uh, shark dives and uh, live aboard trips around the Bahamas to understand and appreciate more sharks, together with a technical diving. So our other specialty is a teaching cave diving, a rebreather, side mount. Uh, more in the underground underwater system we're not uh we don't do really wrecks or deep so we're not into that side of things we're more like into the underground uh cave a uh, technical and we t- tend to do one-on-one or one-on-two so it's very much a la carte is very much private uh even our liverboards are like Oh, six people. And then Kevin uh, provides all the photography, videography of these experiences. So it's a whole package with the education or diving, training, and then the documentation of everything that our guests go through. And so we leave the Bahamas behind on this a special edition of Where the Road Takes Me. My thanks to Christina for joining me. Log on to our website, ChristinaZanato.com. And thank you for being kind enough to share an hour with me this evening. Where the Road Takes Me. It returns on Sunday evening next on C103 at 7. Until then, have a good Sunday and an enjoyable week. Slong of all. <laughs>